This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. No matter your age, I believe you can reinvent your life to live your best life. Although it may not be easy, in fact, it might be really hard sometimes, my guest today is living proof it's possible. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and today my guest is an award-winning journalist, best-selling author who went back to college in her 60s to become a psychotherapist, but that's only a piece of her story. She is also a woman who outed herself to the world as a recovering alcoholic. Anne Dowsett Johnston, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Liz. It's a joy to be here. I know that getting sober for you took many, many years, lots of starts and stops. How long has it been now? 14 years, which is wonderful. Congratulations. You've described sobriety as, quote unquote, fingernails on a chalkboard experience because it was so rocky. How so? I think that when women, especially, I can only speak for women, start to understand that they have a problem with alcohol. We realize that we've probably been using the substance to numb, to -hmm. escape, Mm -hmm. to cope with perfectionism, in my case. Living life feeling all the feelings is what sobriety is about. Growing up, you lived in a few different countries and have said that your childhood was split between joy and distress in a world where people kept secrets, and perhaps that was just a sign of the times as well. And the biggest secret was your mother's own drinking. And that had a huge impact on your life. And you've admitted that while you found drinking quite sensual, you vowed you were never, ever going to become an alcoholic. Your life was going to be very, very different. So what happened? In my case, I worked hard. I was a workaholic long before I was an alcoholic. In my 50s, I had a depression that I couldn't overcome, and I began to, instead of having two drinks of, of wine, I started to drink three. My son had gone off to university. I was dealing with empty nest syndrome, and I became vice principal of McGill University in Montreal. So I had a big job, no personal life to speak of, and I began to drink to actually work harder. Mm. It backfired on me terribly. I stepped on a rake in life and it hit me in the head. Wow. Let's talk about your career for a moment. You mentioned becoming the vice president of McGill University, and that was in your 50s. But even prior to that, you had this amazing 25-year career. You were working at McLean's Magazine, which was Canada's leading Newsweekly. You won seven national magazine awards. You talked about your son. You raised him as a single mom. And yet, you have also written about still feeling like a failure. Why? It wasn't until I wrote my book, Drink, where I felt like the most Anne I've ever felt. That came out nine years ago, where I was really telling the truth about the way women were living. The 70s and 80s were very tough, and, for, and the 90s, for women in a male-dominated newsroom. I think that uh, we were juggling, as we still are juggling, Mm -hmm. lots of hats, lots Mm -hmm. of roles as women. Speaking out, speaking directly in my book, I felt authentic. 
I believe I was authentic and I was speaking to something that was much larger than drinking. It was the modern women's steroid enabling us to do all the heavy lifting we do is for our gender. Let's talk about your book for a moment because you've described journalism writing as therapy for you and your story is so vividly chronicled in your best-selling book, Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. It's very personal, many revealing stories, and fascinating research. People often want to know why they write such a book, and you've said that it outed you. And you say you hate that question of why, why somebody wrote a book. Can you share with us the three reasons why you hate that question? Because I think it really means, how much did you drink? Don't you know you'll never get a job again? <sighs> the truth of the matter is, I wanted my book to be a secret friend to anyone, any woman who wasn't willing to say she had a drinking problem. Long before I told my, my best friend, my sister, I was reading Carolyn Knapp's Drinking a Love Story, which is a wonderful book. And I read and reread it knowing I had a problem. Mm. I think we turned to books and I wanted my book to be that, that friend to other women. You talk about finally getting to that point of, okay, I know I have a drinking problem and you were ready to finally take that last step, if you will. What was the turning point when you said, okay, I can finally do this? Because I think that's really important for a lot of people. My darling mother, who I loved very much, went to rehab three times and never gave it up. My dad died of alcoholism. So I promised myself if my loved ones came to me and said, you have to quit, I would. And my mm -hmm. son came to me and said, you're going to lose me. I couldn't lose my son. And so I went to rehab and with some struggles. 14 years ago, made it. Yeah. I count my blessings every day. What gave you the courage? I'm curious to why you felt you were ready to share your story. I think drinking of that order takes away our will to live. And what happened for me is that my favorite cousin, Doug, was killed by a drunk driver. And I sat down on the floor that morning when I learned of his death and realized what else would I have to lose? At first, I thought it was just my story. Then I realized I'm in the middle of the baby boom. If it happened to me, it's happening to a lot of women. And I did a little bit of research as a journalist and realized that I was one of millions of women who have a problem with alcohol. Not a week goes by without my hearing from someone who's been affected by a book, and it's nine years old. So I wanted to break the secrecy deal that I had grown up with. Mm-hmm. You talk about being a journalist and, of course, doing your research. And as I mentioned a moment ago, yes, your book is full of research. And one of the things that I found so startling was that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that heavy drinking is the third leading cause of death in the United States. And this is after smoking and a combination of a bad diet and inactivity. That is a startling statistic, Anne. And it's gone up since that time my book was, was written. It is a startling statistic. And I think we think of alcohol as not a drug, but as a food group, something you pair with good food. And I don't think we think of it as the most deadly substance. We tend to think of opioids as deadly, but actually alcohol is much deadlier in terms of the numbers of mm -hmm. who it kills every year in North America. 
You've been sober now for 14 years, and I want to share, I think it's important to share, because you talk about this in the book with our listeners, that you're not saying don't ever drink. It's if you can manage it, okay, good for you. But is there a guideline to know when it becomes a problem, when you have to really step back and go, wait a minute, without somebody telling you, you know you have a problem? I secretly think that every person who says, do I have a problem, knows they do. Mm. In Canada, the lowest drinking guidelines came out a month ago. And whereas it used to be 10 drinks a week for a woman, 10 measured drinks, five ounces Mm -hmm. of wine, it's now two. We know so much more about how dangerous alcohol is as a carcinogen. And I'm no prohibitionist, but we know so much. Um, For instance, 15% of breast cancer cases are attributable to alcohol consumption. Wow. Fewer than 5% of women know that. Right. We have been sold a bill of goods by the alcohol industry, and we are not aware of how dangerous it is. Mm -hmm. And binge drinking in particular, you say for women, is actually on the rise and has been for quite some time. Yes. Binge drinking for women is on the rise. We were targeted by the alcohol industry in the mid-1990s. We know all about mommy juice. We know all about girls' night out <laughs> drinks and skinny girl drinks. And we have been targeted. I call it, you know, the pinking the market. And we bought it hook, line, and sinker. So I think we have to be much more aware. We count our calories, we know how to count our drinks. And I think you need to get up in the morning and say, tonight I will have X and keep to your word. And if you can't, mm-hmm. you probably have a problem. I want to get back to your mom for just a moment. I know that you you lost your father to alcoholism, and you say he was actually the sober one in the family for the longest time, and your mother never gave it up. But there was a point where she came to you and apologized. How did that make you feel and help in your healing? When she died at 84, we were very close. She toned down her drinking. She traveled with me to California every year. She came to me and said, darling, don't ever do to your life what I did to mine. And she was very tender to me, and I was tender in return, and it ended up being a true Mm. love story with my mom. A gift in many respects towards the end of her life. Yes. Throughout all of this, when you were trying to get sober, you were involved in a relationship with a man, and you had been for 14 years, and you called him the love of your life. When that relationship ended, you did not reach for a drink. And you share a wonderful story about how your son helped you process what had happened. Will you share that with us? Yes. My son, Nicholas, asked me to get a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, tell him what I had lost and what I had gained since I had given up alcohol. And I said, I lost a sweetheart. And he said, yes, you did. He was a great guy. And then he wasn't. Put what you gained on the other side. And I ran out of room. I gained my Hmm. friendships back. I gained my sister back. I gained my writing back. My son ended up being very wise. It's the sort of central piece of my TEDx talk, which has had 1.4 million views. And I think it's thanks to my son. (laughs) Amazing son you raised. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, Also, somewhere in this journey of healing, you make the decision to fulfill a decades-old dream of becoming a psychotherapist. And at the age of 65, you got your master's in social work. First of all, congratulations on that as well. Thank you. Why a psychotherapist? And where did that dream come from? You know, there was a dream that I had in my 30s. I couldn't afford to go back to school. I was functioning as a single mom. And 
I watched my son walk across the stage getting his psychotherapy degree at Smith College, one of the Ivy League schools in the States. And I thought I can do this. It's time and time's running out for me. So I followed in his footsteps. It was really an effort to help individual women. So many women were coming to me after the book. It was a way for me to help legions of women one-on-one. And it's it proven to be a great career. I imagine, though, there had to be some people who said, you're, you're doing what <laughs> at 65? <laughs> what did you tell them? <laughs> I had a lot of friends. I broke my ankle the week before I went. I was in a wheelchair. A lot of people said, you've got your out. Don't bother. And I said, no, I'm going, in, I'm going in a wheelchair. So I did. And I was older than most people's parents as well as their grandparents. Oh, I love that story. As you mentioned a moment ago, you specialize in working with women, in particular in transition. And you are leading a successful business called Writing Your Recovery. What is the most rewarding aspect of this work for you today? My writing courses, I run six of them. Writing Your Recovery is a way of helping other women find their voice, write their memoirs, write their life stories, and they flourish. And we create writing pods of wonderful, strong women telling their stories at any age, in their 20s up until their 80s. I love that work as well as my psychotherapy work. So I have a full and meaningful life, and I'm also writing fiction. I'm going to run out of years at some point, but so far, so good. Oh, my goodness. So when can we expect your next book? <laughs> I would love to say next year, but I think it'll be three years. <laughs> As having just published my first book a year ago, I get that. I understand what you're saying. Congratulations. Thank you very much. If you would like to learn more about Anne's work and her book, Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, you can reach out to her at AnnDowsettJohnston.com. AnnDowsettJohnston.com. We will have that link for you in our show notes. And you have described yourself as a healer at heart. Thank you so much for sharing your story so that healing can happen for so many others around the world. Thank you, Liz, for having me. That was a delight. And thanks to all of you for listening. I invite you to please write a review, share this episode with someone who needs to hear it. Anne shares a wonderful quote in her book from poet Mary Oliver, which is this, What is it you plan to do with your wild and precious life? So I ask all of you who are listening, what is your plan? Believe that you can reinvent, recreate, heal your life at any age in order to live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.